Genesis chapter 18. We're going we're gonna to be in Genesis 18 and 19. <clears throat> I'm not going to read all of 18 and all of 19. I'm going to read the relevant portions that we're going to talk about specifically. But I really would encourage you to take the time and, um, and read these scriptures and read them in the context that they're written and begin to train yourself. As you read the Bible, train yourself to, to look for the gospel, to look for Christ. How is the scripture revealing Christ and his gospel? Uh, and that's really our aim as we go through Genesis. And so we're going we're gonna to look at Genesis 18. And let's begin reading. Uh, we're going to begin reading in the 11th verse. <clears throat> so to give you a little bit of context, <clears throat> you know, Abraham has heard from the Lord the, the covenant has been instituted and the sign of the covenant, which was circumcision, has been commanded by God for Abraham and all of his household, all of his children, his sons that are born in his household, those that are brought into his household. If they're going to be a part of the household, if they're going to be partakers of the covenant, the blessing of God, they must bear the sign of the covenant, which was circumcision. So now we come to chapter 18, and we talked about how that was a picture of the cross and a cutting away of the flesh and a cutting away of that old man, that old nature, and that that ultimately is achieved through the cross of Jesus Christ. And this is why we're called to bear our cross and we're called to be crucified with Christ so that the old man can be put away and we can come into the reality, the living reality of a new man. And so now in chapter 18, God appears to Abram, and this is when God comes to Abram, to Abraham. His name has already been changed. This is when God comes to Abraham and to Sarah and tells them that they will have a child. And so the Lord comes, and Abraham is getting a meal together and commanding his servants and everyone to, to get, get stuff ready because they're going to have a meal together. What Caleb talked about, the word companion, and, and when we talk about breaking bread, we, we've kind of lost the significance of that in our Western culture. In the Eastern cultures, this is much still a much more prevalent and, and better understood reality that when two people sit down and they eat together, there's something very significant about that. In our Western culture, we've become very kind of, we've trivialized and all of this has kind of become meaningless. And so in, in the Eastern cultures, traditionally, for two enemies to come together and break bread together, that was very significant because the sign of breaking bread together spoke of friendship. It spoke of agreement. It spoke of unity. And this is why in those cultures, whenever a treaty or, or peace was brought where there was conflict, there would always be the offering of a meal because it was a significant sign of peace and of friendship. That's the significance of this table. Not only that God has now brought peace between 
us between heaven and earth, but it speaks of our peace and our unity that we are one in him. And so Abraham is preparing a meal and they're going to sit down and they're going to break bread together. So he's already come into the covenant and, and God has made great, unbelievable promises to Abraham. And so now let's pick the story up in verse 11 of chapter 18. It says, now Abraham and Sarah were old. I'm sorry, let's begin in verse 10. And he said, this is the Lord, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door when, when, uh, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is, look at verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? I want you to pay attention to that question. You should mark that question in your Bible. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Now the story goes on and Sarah denies because if you were paying attention, it says Sarah laughed within herself. So you can laugh within yourself. You can <clears throat> say things within yourself, but God can still hear you, right? He has ears that go beyond our natural hearing. And so um, we're not going to talk about that. We're going to stop right there. What I want to focus on is this, is this question that the Lord asks of Abraham and Sarah and by asking them, by directing this question to them, he is, he is asking the same question of us today. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Now, there is so much here in this verse. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, who appointed the time. You say, well, nature appointed it. Well, who appointed nature? Well, God did. Who determined that a woman would carry a child approximately nine months and then, and then birth that child? God did. So the appointed time is determined by who? I don't care whether you think this is talking about the natural time of life, it is. The term of a pregnancy, it is, but it also speaks something greater than that. God has an appointed time. He had an appointed time when Isaac would be born. In 13 years before this appointed time, Abraham took it upon himself to try to make the promise come to pass in his own power. The reason the promise hadn't come to pass was not because God forgot, because God was too busy doing other things. The reason the promise hasn't, hadn't come to pass is because it was not yet the appointed time. Oftentimes we ask God out loud or within ourselves, God, what 
What's the deal? God, have you forgotten about me? God, am, am I missing something? Should I be doing something else? Is there something I'm not doing? Obviously, there's something I'm not doing. So you know what we do? We start doing all kinds of things. Now, I'm not saying don't do anything. I'm not saying sit on the couch and be a couch potato and wait for God to answer all your prayers. That's not what I'm saying. Be a responsible, diligent human being. But don't take it upon yourself when you are living in and acting in and operating in faith, doing all that you know to do within the context of what God has promised you. In other words, we don't ever have to wonder about going outside the the bounds of the revealed word of God. Abraham should not have wondered because God told him, I'm going to do this. But he got impatient and took it upon himself to try to make something happen. But guess what? When it was the appointed time, it all happened the way it was supposed to. So I want you to pay attention to that. There is an appointed time. There is a season of life. To everything, there is a season, Ecclesiastes says. You might not like the season that you are in right now, but it is the season that God has you in. You might be saying, God, when are you going to get me out of this season? And his answer is, at the appointed time. Someone this week was complaining about how hot it is, and they kept asking, when is it going to get cold? When is it going to get cold? When is it going to get cold? And the answer is, at the appointed time. I can't give you a specific day or hour, but we can discern the seasons, and we know that we are moving from summer into fall, and, and then we will move into winter. And before too long, we won't have to wonder when it's going to get cold. It's going to be cold. And then guess what we're going to be saying? When is it going to get warm? When is it going to get warm? And the answer is the same. At the appointed time, in due season, it will come to pass. That is a lesson. That is a truth that we need to remember in our own lives. There is an appointed time, there is a season. God will bring it to pass in his time. And so this is where Abram, Abraham was. And Sarah laughs within herself because she's looking at this, this 100-year-old man. And she's a 90-year-old woman. And she's like, is this old man and this old woman going to have a child? Really? That's comical. But God said, no, it's not comical. It's truth. Because there is nothing too difficult for God. What is impossible with man is always possible with God. God brings about his plan and his purpose through the power of the Spirit. Man's attempt is always through the arm of the flesh. Now listen, we are servants to the will of God. God is not servant to ours. God is not servant to our will. Remember, we looked last week when, in Genesis 17 when Abraham cries out to God, Oh God, that Ishmael would live before you. In other words, Oh God, can't Ishmael be the child of promise? Abraham didn't even have Isaac yet. He had the promise of Isaac. 
And he says, God, we've got Ishmael. Can't he be the child of promise? And God says, no, he cannot be. Because Ishmael is your will, but Isaac is my will. God is not servant to our will. We must become servant to his will. And this is why Ishmael could not be the child of promise. God's plan is not according to man's will, but according to his own. We are called to conform to and delight in the will of God and make it our own. Do you realize that's what prayer does? Prayer does not change God's mind. Prayer changes your mind. Prayer changes us. Prayer brings us into conformity with the will of God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In him, there is no variableness nor shadow of turning. The writer of Hebrews teaches us. So Ishmael came by the flesh according to the will of man. Isaac comes by the promise According to the will of God, we are no longer children of the flesh, but we are now children of the promise through faith in Jesus Christ. Through a new birth come the children of promise. Ishmael came through the birth produced by Abraham and Hagar. God says the child of promise is not going to come from an old birth. The child of promise is going to come from a new birth, and it's not a birth that you can achieve on your own, and God waited until Abraham and Sarah were so old that they would not be able to take credit for the new birth that God would bring. And we, you and I, cannot take credit for the new birth that we come into by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. By a new birth, the children of promise come forth. In the flesh, it seemed impossible for Sarah and Abraham to produce a child, but it never depended upon their ability. It depended upon God's promise. Our new birth is impossible through the work of the flesh. It is possible only through the work of his spirit according to the promise of God. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. This is the promise of God. The old is passed away. Behold, all things become new. This is why God said, you must put Ishmael and Hagar out. Ishmael must be put out. Why? This is a picture of the old that must pass away so that the new can come. The new will not come while the old is still here. The new must cause the old to to go, to leave. Now all things are of God, 2 Corinthians 5.18 declares, after the new birth. So Romans 8, let's turn over there, hold your place in Genesis. Let's let's look at Romans chapter 8, verses 8. Through 10. Romans 8, 8 through 10. So then, 
So then those who are of the, in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. How does the spirit of God come to dwell in you? It comes to dwell in you by a new birth. So when you're born again, the spirit of God comes to dwell in you. You are no longer in the flesh, but you are in the spirit. You are no longer your own. You belong to Jesus. And if you belong to Jesus, the spirit of God is in you and you have become a child of promise. So our righteousness that is impossible through the works of the flesh is made possible through faith in Jesus Christ. God has made a way where there was no way. Nothing is too difficult for God. In his grace, he has made a way of salvation through Jesus Christ. And we walk that way by faith in the power of the Spirit. Now, while you're in Romans, let's stay in chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Let's move down a little bit over to about verse 27. Romans 8, 27. So is there anything too hard for the Lord, God asks? And the answer to that is absolutely not. And so that we see that the promise of God is not limited by what appears impossible. I'm sure that many of us right now you could think in your mind of impossible situations. What seems to be an impossible situation, it could be, it could be the health or the sickness that a loved one is struggling with. It could be a financial need. It could be someone who's, who's just so rebellious and so contrary to God. You think, how could God ever save a person like that. But God teaches us in his word that there is no situation, there is nothing that is too difficult, too hard for him. So the promise of God is not limited by what appears impossible. If God has done for us what is impossible to do for ourselves, namely our salvation. Listen, Whatever situation or circumstance you can think of in your life, directly or indirectly related to your life, there is, I'm going to tell you right now, there is no situation that was more impossible than your salvation. The need of salvation that we are born with is a need that we are absolutely unable to meet for ourselves. There is nothing more impossible than our salvation, humanly speaking. Yet God has done what is impossible for us to do. And if God has done what is impossible for us to do in terms of our salvation, the greatest miracle, the greatest thing, the greatest gift that God could ever give us, we realize 
Listen, just look at the world around you. Listen to the conversations that take place. Knowingly or unknowingly, you realize very quickly that there are a lot of people who would trade money, fame, power, influence for their salvation because they don't really understand the magnitude and the need of their salvation. We have people pursuing all sorts of things in an earthly, in a worldly way, yet the thing that they need most, they are oblivious to and pay absolutely no attention to it. And we glorify those things that are so contrary to who Christ is and to the very nature and character of God. We glorify all of these things that are so contrary to that. And we minimize the reality the magnitude of the miracle of our salvation. You will experience no greater miracle than your salvation. It might not feel physically like it's the greatest thing that's ever happened. You can be saved and not feel good physically you can be saved and not feel good emotionally you can be saved and walk through some very difficult and trying circumstances and if if we're not careful those outside forces that are pressing against us can begin to cause us to wonder whether God has forgotten about us kind of like it happened to Abraham and Sarah Gosh, it's been years. I wonder if I wonder if God's forgotten about us. He made a promise. Or or maybe maybe we're supposed to do it this way. If God has done for us what is impossible for us to do for ourselves, why do we allow fear and doubt to cloud our hearts and our minds concerning anything else? If God can save you from a sinner's hell, do you think God can meet the other needs that we have? He absolutely can. But, but when is he going to do it? At the appointed time, his season? Listen, I have the same question. God, when are you going to do it? I've got, I've got a list of things that I wish God would do right now. And I ask God quite frequently... I do. God, when are you going to do that? God, now I know you're not forgetful. I am, but I know you're not God. So, you know, and I, am I missing something? Lord, am I missing something? If I'm missing something, would you please tell me, show me. If I am that blind, that deaf, that hard-headed, that thick skull, that stiff neck, God, if, if that's my condition, would you please break through that and show me so that if there's something I need to do, I can get on with doing it so that, I, I don't know, that, I'm just being honest with you. I mean, I talk to God that way. That's how my prayers sound sometimes. Actually, they sound that way a lot of times. And here's what I have come to believe and come, come to trust. That if my heart's desire is to be in the will of God, whether I'm discerning it correctly or not, if that's my desire, that my legitimate desire, whether I even know what that looks like or 
God will get me there. It's just that sometimes the appointed time and the season doesn't come when I want it to. And I do get impatient. And as I was preparing this message and these, these messages, it, it really was a reminder to me, I'm just like Abraham. I'm just as doubtful and unbelieving as Abraham is when it comes to the promises of God because I get just as impatient and I begin to wonder just like he does. Well, well so what do I do with that? Paul wrote that these things were written for our example. You know why God You know why God let Abraham go through everything he went through and then had Moses record it for us? Because it becomes an example for us. Because God knew that we would be tempted just like Abraham was tempted to try to bring about the promise through the arm of the flesh. And so God gives us this reminder so that we will stop and say, okay, God, I'm tempted to move by the arm of the flesh, but I perceive that it must not be the appointed time. It must not be the season yet. Help me, Lord, in my unbelief. That's a legitimate prayer. That's a legitimate cry. I believe, God, help my unbelief. It's okay. Guy said that to Jesus. It was okay. Jesus, Jesus still healed his loved one. God's not expecting us to have perfect faith. Because the promise isn't dependent upon our ability. The fulfillment is not dependent upon our ability. It's dependent upon God's promise. He will fulfill it. Have you found Romans 8, 27 yet? tried to give y'all some time to get there. Don't laugh at me. Okay, let's read. Uh, I'm going to read to you Romans 8, 27 through 39. Uh, it's a beautiful section of scripture. Okay, follow with me. Romans 8, 27. Now he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who are to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. I want you to notice the progression here. What then shall we say to those things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us. Excuse me. Who, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, 
who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So in these verses, from 27 to 39, God has given us great, promise. He has given great promise to those who love God, to those who are the called. That's who he refers to in verse 33, who are called the elect. So this is a promise to all who have trusted in Jesus. I want you to hear this. I want us to go through each of these verses and I want to point out a promise God gives in each of these verses. In verse 27, God promises that his spirit in us is always interceding for us according to the will of God. Now that should just blow your mind right out of your head right there if you really thought about that for a moment. That the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is dwelling in you. And that Spirit that raised Christ from the dead intercedes on your behalf according to the will of God. When is he never not interceding on your behalf according to the will of God? There is never a time. When you slept last night, he was interceding on your behalf. As you're sitting here listening to my voice, he's interceding on your behalf. As you ate breakfast this morning, as you eat lunch today, as you get ready for bed tonight, he is interceding on your behalf. Verse 28, God promises he has a plan that he is working together for good in all things. Yes, in your very in your very uh, hopeless situation, in your very stressful situation, yes, in the situation that seems utterly impossible for you right now, God is actively working His plan for good. And you and your situation are a part of His plan. It doesn't matter whether the enemy meant it for evil. It doesn't matter whether your brothers or sisters meant it for evil. It doesn't matter if you just made a horrible mistake. It doesn't matter. What matters is the promise that in spite of why you're in the situation you're in, God is Lord over your situation and he is working all things together for good. That's a promise. 
Verse 29, God promises that those he foreknew, those he predestined, will be conformed to his son. God foreknew us, God predestined us, and God called us to be conformed to the image of his son. What's your destiny in Christ? It is to be conformed to the image of the son of God. Verse 29, verse 30, God is working in us by all things, in all things, through all things to bring us to glorification in Christ. What is the ultimate end? The ultimate end is glory. Let's look at the progression here. Read with me. For whom he foreknew, verse 29, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, who did he predestine? Those he foreknew. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Why is God working all things together for good in your life, in my life, and in all who, are, who love God and are the called according to his purpose for the glory of God? That's why. But that glory is not separate from you. You have been brought into, caught up in that glory. John 17, Jesus prays specifically for all of us in this room that we would become partakers of the same glory that he had with the Father before time and space began. How did you and I come to possess that? It's called grace. That was beyond our ability. But with God, nothing is too hard. Verse 31, God is for us. He asks a rhetorical question. If God is for us, who can be against us? Christian, tell me right now, if God is for you, who can be against you? Well, what about cancer? They didn't know about cancer back in those days. What about uh, the stock market and the world economy? They, they didn't know about that either. No. We don't have anything today that they didn't have then. We experience nothing today that man has not experienced from the, since the beginning. There is no temptation. There is nothing that comes against us that Jesus has not already faced and has already overcome. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's a promise. Verse 32, God delivered up his son for us and with him, he will freely, freely give us all things. Not grudgingly, not reluctantly, but he will freely give us all things. Sometimes in our impatience, we think God is being reluctant. God is withholding. That's what the enemy told Adam and Eve. That's what the enemy wants you to believe. 
well, God's holding back. God's holding, uh, holding back from you. You must be doing something wrong. God must not love you. Mm-mm. Listen, God may be working something out. It may not be the appointed time. It may not be the season yet. But the promise hasn't come because God's withholding from you something. The promise hasn't come because God is freely giving you all things and he is working in you something very good and very glorious. Are you with me? Verse 33. God has justified his elect and there is no charge to be brought against us. Listen, your appointed time in the season hasn't come yet because it's not because the enemy's up in heaven with an accusation against you and God says, oh, we've got to stop everything. There's an accusation that's been brought. We need to investigate this now. I can't answer uh, Jimmy Bob's prayer over here because I can't answer Jeff's prayer because the devil's brought an accusation against him. So we've got to stop everything and make sure this isn't true. Now, listen, I have been justified in Jesus Christ, not because I deserve to be, but because God in his grace has justified me by grace through faith. There is no accusation that can be brought before me. This is the disarmament that took place that Paul writes about in Colossians, that the enemy has been disarmed through the cross of Christ and God made an open show of him, triumphing over him in the cross because the enemy is the accuser of the brethren. That's who Satan is. That's who the devil is. That's what his name means. He is the accuser of the brethren. He has been disarmed. There is no accusation that can be brought. Why? Because, because you were crucified with Christ. You were buried with Christ. Your old man is dead and gone and God doesn't know him anymore. God only knows you now in the righteousness of his son. We're going to talk about lingering in sin like Lot did. You may still be lingering in sinfulness, but trust me, It's the love of God and the grace of God that's going to work that out of your life. God's not withholding from you while you get it right. God is working in you, and you need to trust his timing. Christ, verse 34, makes intercession for us. There it is again. Twice we've been reminded in these verses that That God is interceding. The Spirit is interceding. Christ is interceding. We've got two persons of the Godhead interceding on our behalf. How could you even begin to imagine that you could lose when you've got the Spirit of God and the Son of God interceding on your behalf? Wow. You talk about having people of influence on your side. Oh my gosh. Verse 35, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. What about that? No, stop. Nothing. Yeah, but you know, no, stop. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. You love God. You love God. You are the call according to his purpose. 
Because the only way you can love God is for God to love you first. And nothing, nothing, nothing will separate you from the love of Christ. That's 1 John 4, 19, in case you're wondering. Verses 36 and 37. In all things, we're being killed, led to sh- like sheep to the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors. In all things, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. Your victory and your identity as a conqueror, as a more than a conqueror, is not dependent upon your situation. You may, because of your situation, feel like a failure, but the Bible says, in the midst of your worst situation, you are more than a conqueror. And so what needs to happen a lot of times, this is what I'm going to speak personally, what I realize from my own life is that I need to get over myself. Because my designation as more than a conqueror is not about me. It is about Christ. And I didn't win that designation. You know, I used to be in sales. And you always have sales contests to motivate the salesman, right? Listen, my designation is more than a conqueror. It wasn't a, wasn't a pin I got because I won a sales contest and I, I was able to climb that ladder of success and finally achieve that more than a conqueror status. God finally saw all my victories and all my hard work and, and now he's, he's given me more than a conqueror. That's who I am. No. <laughs> Look what Paul's writing here. Paul is saying in the midst of seeming failure, utter, utter failure, you're being led to death. Talk about prosperity gospel. This is so anti what so much of the church has fallen in love with today. Being led to your death like a sheep to the slaughter doesn't sound like very much prosperity and success. But Paul says, yet in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Don't buy the lie of the enemy. You are in spite of your circumstance, more than a conqueror. And then finally, verses 38 and 39. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. So I want you to see this. We have the intercession of the Spirit and the intercession of Christ. We have the love of Christ and we have the love of God. Specifically, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Specifically, nothing can separate us from the love of the Father. of the Son, and of the Spirit. The complete Godhead loves you completely. And there is nothing that will separate you from that love. This is the assurance we have in Christ, that He is the God of hope. In all things, in every situation or circumstance, impossible or not, we are never without hope. In every moment of our life, God is working his plan for his ultimate glory and our ultimate good. Now, we are in five minutes. We're going we're to run through Genesis chapter 19. You don't believe me. I know you don't, but we're going to do it. Okay. Then I got to pray afterwards, so it's probably going to go a little more than 
12, okay? But in five minutes, let's, let's go Genesis 19, because this goes, this goes with us. Now we get to Genesis 19, and we see the story of Lot. And what I want you to see here is that God saves us in spite of ourselves. God saved you and God saved me in spite of me, in spite of you. So in Genesis, let's look at one scripture in particular. In verses 15 through 22, you can go back and read. You can read the whole chapter. Um, in verses 15 through 22, we see this is when uh, the angels, they, they come to Lot the Lord and, and the angels come to Abraham and Abraham bargains at the end, in chapter 18. They're going to destroy Sodom. And Abraham is bargaining. If there's 50, will you save it? Yeah. If there's 40, he gets all the way down to 10. If there's 10, will you save it? Yes. If there's 10, I'll save it. You know what Abraham was doing? This is a picture. Abraham was interceding on behalf of his nephew Lot, who he called his son. This is a picture of Christ interceding on our behalf to the Father for our salvation. And so Abraham intercedes on Lot's behalf. The angels go, they go to Sodom and Gomorrah and they are getting ready to rain fire and brimstone and bring utter destruction to this wicked city. You can read the account of the wickedness of the men there. And so finally the angels are there and they tell Lot, they said, look, we've got to go right now. But Lot is resistant. He's lingering. He's bargaining. He's trying to say, but, but well, well, wait, wait, wait. They're like, we, we've got to go right now. And we see this happening in verse, verses 15 through 22. Look at verse 16 in particular. Two verses we're going to read. Verse 16. And while he lingered, while Lot lingered, the men took hold of his hand his wife's hand and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. Now look at verse 29. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. So in Genesis 29, we see it was for Abraham's sake that Lot was delivered. So Lot's salvation was tied to Abraham. 2 Peter 2.7, Peter calls Lot righteous. He doesn't seem very righteous when you read about the account here. But his righteousness wasn't based on his works, as your righteousness and my righteousness are not based on our works. Righteousness comes by faith. So obviously Lot had faith. And I think it's pretty obvious that Lot's faith was tied to Abraham's faith. Abraham raised this young man as a son. And the Bible says it was for Abraham's sake that God brought Lot out of the destruction. It was God's grace that saved Lot. It is the grace of God that saves us. Lot was literally taken by the hand and brought to safety while lingering and resisting God's grace. But God's grace was beyond his resistance because God remembered Abraham. Two things, two truths I want you to see here pictured in Genesis 19.16 and Genesis 19.29. The first is the irresistible grace of God. 
In verse 16, notice the phrase, while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand. And then notice the phrase, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out. None of us come out of sin willingly, but in his mercy, by the grace of God, he brings us out and sets us outside the old and brings us safely into the new. Verse 22, the angel said, get to the city because we can't do anything until you're in the city and safe. By the grace of God, we're brought out of the old and we're brought safely into the new. Verse 29, here's the second truth. The first is the irresistible grace of God. The second is this. Salvation is through the life and the righteousness of another. We see in Genesis 18 verses 23 through 33 that Abraham interceded for Lot. And God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. God saved Lot for Abraham's sake. Christ has interceded for us and God remembers Christ. And because of Christ, God has sent us out of the midst of the overthrow of judgment and wrath. In spite of our resistance and lingering in sin, God has saved us for the sake of his son. You didn't come to salvation because one day you got it all together and and were completely ready to go ready to live a sinless life for God. If that's the truth, then your salvation is not based on the grace of God, but your salvation is based on your ability to work. And nowhere in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is that translated, is that taught to us. Our salvation is based on the grace of God. This is a beautiful picture of it right here. So here's three things that I want you to get from this message today. Number one, nothing is too difficult for God. Number two, his grace is irresistible and always working in your life. His grace is working in you to bring about his glory and your good. In spite of your best efforts to thwart God's grace, his grace is irresistible. The third is this, his salvation is given to you for the sake of Christ. Christ has already interceded on your behalf. You are not saved by what you have done but by what Christ has already done. In spite of our stubborn insistence to linger in sinful danger, God in his grace will take us by the hand and bring us to salvation. God in his grace delivers us to salvation daily, though we may be completely unaware. Just stop sometimes and just think about the things you take for granted. I'm not talking about, boy, I didn't have that accident and die in that car wreck. That's not what I'm talking about. We always want to go there. You know, I could have died if God delayed me, though I ran out of gas and otherwise I... No, I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about those things. I, listen, bring it down to your everyday normal life. In your everyday normal life, do you realize that God brings you to salvation every moment of every day? And you don't even know it and I don't even know it. He does it in ways that we are totally oblivious and unaware of, yet he does it. How do I know he does it? Because you're here listening to what I'm saying right now, because you have professed faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and you didn't get there on your own. You got there because God has been working in you, for you, on your behalf, long before you were born. 
Somehow you got to be born on this earth and come to this place, and it didn't just happen, you know, several decades ago. It's been happening since the beginning. God's been working since before the beginning, before there was a beginning. So God is working. He's working right now as you hear his gospel. He's working while you slept last night. He was working this morning when you made ready to come here. He'll be working today and every day in ways that you are not aware of and in ways that are very obvious. Listen, when we barely missed the, the wreck that could have killed us, that's pretty obvious. Ooh, we say, man, God was watching out after me as if he wasn't all the rest of the time. Just because you didn't have a close call with death, does that mean God wasn't? Does he just show up? Is he like Spider-Man or Batman? See, that's who God is to us. I love Spider-Man and Batman and Superman and all those guys. I, I watched Captain America the other night. Great movie. I loved it. It was very entertaining. But listen, that's not who God is. God is not Captain America. God's not Spider-Man, Batman, Superman, the Hulk, or any of the other Marvel superheroes. God is not a superhero. He is God. He doesn't just show up when things get bad and save us in the very last clutches of the, no, he is God. Listen, he's Lord over everything. These lights are shining because God is God. The oxygen we're breathing is here because he is the creator. He didn't just start working when you had a problem. He's been working long before time and space existed. This is the God who lives in you. This is the God who's interceding for you. This is the spirit that hovered over the darkness and brought everything that was not to be. That's the spirit that's in you, interceding for you right now. Christian, why are you doubting? Why are you fearful? I'm preaching to myself right now, okay? What are we worried about? Do we think God's going to suddenly cease being God? Because he's encountered a winter soldier or a villain that's almost as strong as he is and he's in a really tough battle and I'm just left here to fend for myself until hopefully he wins? No, I don't think so. That's, that's what the world wants you to believe God is if you're going to believe in one, but that's not who God is. This is the grace of God. This is the gospel of God. This is the God of hope who promises us nothing is too difficult for his grace and his salvation working in us for his glory and for our good. Amen? Let's all stand. Here's my prayer for you. Let's pray. Father, we come to you right now in the precious, powerful name of Jesus. God, in spite of our lingering resistance, we ask that you would work in us. Bring us into your will for your glory. Lord, bring us, compel us, drag us, but let your will be done in us that we may experience the fullness of and the abundance of all you have for us in Christ as you conform us to the image of the Son of God. God, we ask that you would 
Change us in your grace. And do not allow us to remain as we are. Amen. Here's my challenge to you. Learn to be content in whatever state you find yourself to be in, but do not be apathetic. In the name of Jesus and the grace of God, resist apathy and indifference and pray that God would disrupt and eliminate this from your life. Apathy and indifference are sin. And if you find these in your life, repent and fall on the grace of God as you pray that he would change and transform you for his glory. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Go to the world in hope. Go in the grace and the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Go as disciples compelling them to come in and become disciples. Go in his peace. In Jesus' name, amen.